VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, July the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair, so let's get the week off to a roaring start. That can only happen when you join us live on the program. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, sometimes the small talk topics dominate the news and social conversations. And I suppose there's no avoiding the fact that the big story here for many is the heat. Now, I get it, it's summertime, but when the temperature hits 30 degrees in St. John's yesterday, humidex in and around 38 at one point during the afternoon, it does become a realistic story. So there's several events that actually happened over the weekend, some that were postponed because of the heat warnings. Let's get down to some of it. And of course, the heat doesn't necessarily only have to do with congregations and sporting events and parades and the like. It has a legitimate impact on an awful lot of folks and their pets and some of the people in your neighborhood, especially those who live alone, maybe found themselves in a pretty precarious spot over the weekend. Sleep, hard to come by to say the very least. Now let's go to the sandlot, a bit of baseball. For the first time in a long time, the Provincial Junior Baseball Championships, five teams took place down at Pat's Ballpark. So it was Mount Pearl, Gander, Paradise, and the two teams that met in the final. The St. John's Caps and the Cornerbrook Barons. Legendary title right there. St. John's went on to beat the Barons 14-4, become the Provincial Junior Champions. Congratulations to all involved. Good to see the Provincial Juniors back in action. And then there's also the tale of things that did not happen over the weekend. The Pride Parade was postponed. Their organizers simply say the heat gave them pause for concern, so consequently they're trying to go to rebook it for a more appropriate, more comfortable day. And then the one that got a fair bit of attention and some possible controversy associated with it was the 94th running of the Tele 10. So it was supposed to happen yesterday, and everyone understands that particular race from Octagon Pond into Bannerman Park, 10 miles of road racing. So their organizers, in consultation with St. John Ambulance, and I think just looking at the weather, decided that in the interest of caution, they'll postpone it. The race is now going to happen on the 28th of August. For those who have made travel plans around the Teleton, whether it be coming from other parts of the province, and yes, runners who come from other parts of the country to participate in that road race, they were duly disappointed. Completely understand. A friend of mine in my neighborhood, speaking with them on Saturday afternoon, just happened to run into them on the street. They were scheduled to participate. They had been doing whatever type of amateur training that they were involved in over the summer. And he simply said, I'm not doing it. It's too hot. I'm not built for the heat. And so consequently, I'm not doing it. There has been reference made to the fact that other parts of the country with similar heat concerns had a bunch of events take place, including some road races. I'm not sure that's neither here nor there. For people in this neck of the woods, and I can, I suppose, only speak for myself, I'm not built for that type of heat. And it's not just about my physical stature. It's just that I just don't do well with that type of smothering, humid heat. So if you think back to one of the most hottest uh, telly tens in recent memory, back to 2014, a bunch of serious injuries, including a guy in a medically induced coma for a month. So it's up to you whether or not you think the telly ten organizers did the right thing. And for those who did indeed spend money to be in town and maybe can't come back for the rescheduled race on August 28th, I completely understand your concern. I think there would have been a lot of people just willfully said, I'm not going out and running in this. 
Others, maybe not so much. I saw one guy who sent me, I don't know, a dozen emails since the announcement was made saying, we've gone soft. Well, I don't know if it makes you hard or tough to be able to withstand this type of very unseasonably warm temperatures, especially when we talk about the humid X, but the Tele 10 got postponed. So you want to tackle it, we can do it. And I get it. I mean, if you traveled here for the race or you had some special arrangements made to run with members of your family or your buddies and you all can't get it uh, back together for the rescheduled race, frustration is real. I think we could have seen some pretty significant numbers of people dropping off the course and saying, ah, you know what, it's just too overwhelmingly hot. You know, even just puttering around made for a long afternoon for some folks. Anyway, you want to take it on, we can do it. All right. And the heat, lightning strikes, saw a couple of interesting videos, a lightning strike out in Eastport. We know portions of the Beta Spare Highway are closed because of forest fires. I'm looking for an update in and around midday today as to whether or not that will be reopened, but let's go with that. Here's some good news. We found out late last week that the Stanley Cup will indeed see a parade happening here on August 22nd when Colorado Avalanche forward Alex Newhook brings the cup home. <laughs> so good. So it's going to begin at Bannerman Park at 2 p.m. on that day. Travel down Military, Ordnance, Duckworth, Prescott, Water. Going to make the way through portions of the downtown pedestrian mall. End up on George Street where Alex and the Cup will take the stage alongside Mayor Danny Breen and some other special guests. But the parade will be happening on the 22nd of August. How exciting is that at all? We'll give you more details as we get closer, like the Metrobus uh, park and ride and those types of things. And the accommodations made for inclusivity and what have you, but the Stanley Cup Parade on the 22nd of August. Are you going? You knows I'm going. All right. A couple of interesting sport notes. You know, the, the country is in a good spot when it comes to a variety of athletics that we might not pay a whole lot of attention to, whether it be the World Track, uh, the Athletics Championships, we'll get to some of that now soon, tennis, golf, and in golf, Canadian Brooke Henderson won the Evian Championship, one of the LPGA majors uh, over the weekend. It's her second major. She becomes the first Canadian to win multiple majors in professional golf. So congratulations to Brooke. And then at the World Athletic Championships, we won the 4x100 men's relay race. Uh, if we hadn't, the Americans who finished second, they were the favorites going in, they would have swept all the men's sprint races. So we win that one. And a fellow named Pierre LePage won the silver medal in the decathlon. The reigning Olympic gold medalist Damien Warner pulled out during the event with a hamstring injury, but we won a silver medal in the decathlon. How absolutely cool is that. And this one is a Today in History. How are we doing on the phone there, Fonz? Let's get her going. It's Monday. Today in History, 1999. Lance Armstrong. He won his first Tour de France. He was prior given a very dire diagnosis of testicular cancer. And we know what became of the yellow bands that people wore proudly on their wrists. And Lance Armstrong went on to win seven consecutive Tour de France. It's a superhuman effort to begin with. So the distance covered is 3,328 kilometers over 21 days. Only two rest days for the cyclists. Of course, Armstrong now goes on to be synonymous with doping. And then doping became a conversation in sports far and wide. And Lance Armstrong, who was an American hero, an athletic hero internationally, of course, ended up being completely disgraced. And all his titles stripped when he was investigated, found out to be an absolute key in wide-ranging doping conspiracy, not only for cyclists, but beyond. So anyway, the Tour de France just ended yesterday, as a matter of fact. Some Dutch guy wanted, I can't remember now, what's his name? Uh, no, Danish guy. Jonas Vingegaard won his first Tour de France, but Lance Armstrong won his first 1999. All right. It was one day last week 
we had a volunteer firefighter call the program to talk about the fact that he was at a restaurant. I think it was Brown's. And there was a, a lady close by who was choking on some turkey. He, of course, went down and proceeded to administer the abdominal thrust, the Heimlich maneuver. And so I've long said, you know, some of these life-saving techniques and some of the first aid that we all should know enough about just in case we find ourselves in this situation to apply the Heimlich or otherwise. Another story, so it's become fairly frequent. This one, young Simon and his brother Levi, they were home with Nan. Nan was looking after her two grandchildren. Her name is Mary Olford. She took a bite of the crust of a Simon's grilled cheese sandwich and she started to choke on it. Through the panic, Simon was able to control himself. Years prior, his parents showed him how to do the Heimlich, but Nanny coached him on with position of his hands and what have you. And Simon Hart, as a matter of fact, his grandfather's also Terry Hart, the OCM legend Terry Hart. Simon saved Nanny. That's the end of the story. Nine years of age, Nanny was struggling, could have very easily choked to death on the grilled cheese sandwich, and Simon, because he knew enough from years past and was composed enough to follow Nanny's instructions, applied the Heimlich a couple of smacks on the back, and eventually the crust of the grilled cheese was dislodged, and Nanny's here to tell a tale. So, Simon, bravo, young man. Bravo! But when you hear, I mean, this is not a new story. We've now, just in the last two weeks, heard two applications of the Heimlich. People were saved, because people knew what to do. So, anyway, I'd love to talk to Simon or Mary or anybody else involved, but that's really quite something else, something that Nanny will f- never forget. The raining of the hugs and kisses will be relentless for Simon and Levi, and of course that's what Nanzi Pops are like anyway. But boy, oh boy, that's some story. So it's worthwhile having some of these conversations with our children about what to do when and if one of their buddies, like I can't remember when my boys were small, I was perpetually worried because they would wolf down the grapes like it was the nobody's business, and sometimes, maybe every now and then, they'd actually bite into one, but it was <laughs> down go the grapes. Just a classic piece of fruit to choke on. So, you know, it's giving our kids a heads up, whether it be in school or at the soccer or day camps, about what happens if your pal or your nan or your mother or whoever starts to fall prey like that. Anyway, way to go, Simon. I read another story, and I think that's happening here in this province as well, maybe not to the scale we see in other parts of the country. When the pandemic began and we were isolated to some extent, whether it be uh, people living by themselves and or families, People got physically active, maybe. Or maybe they took up chess. But a lot of folks got a pet. And now what we're seeing across the country, they're talking about the pandemic pets that are being abandoned at shelters right around the country. So what I just recommended, I think it's a good idea to understand and to learn about some of the techniques regarding first aid. This happens a lot, whether it be around Easter and the bunnies that are gifts or Christmas and the puppies are the gifts. And families might not be entirely sure what they're getting themselves into for cost and time that required that is required to have a pet in the home. Now it looks like pandemic pets are overwhelming shelters right across the country. If you're so inclined to talk about that from any position, knowledge or otherwise, let's take it on. All right. So come home here. And I look, I get it. For some of you, you couldn't care less. For others, it's an opportunity to see a boost to your hospitality tourism business. And that industry needs it badly. Looks like bookings are strong, people are here. So whether it be about signage or roads or whatever the case may be. But this one comes from a story at St. John's International Airport. Saturday night, while the cabbies are occupied with some of the other notable socializing areas, George Street and otherwise, there were passengers, a big plane, full of passengers, 
they get off at St. John's International Airport, go out to find zero taxis. So I get the private sector companies like the taxis are going to be where they think they can be to get the fares and make their money on a Saturday night or otherwise. But it needs to be incumbent on the airport authority, and I don't know what role the province plays, but you can't have people show up with zero opportunity to get a ride from the airport. Because not everyone has friends and family here who are willing to pick them up at 1.40 in the morning. But that story, I think, if we see a lot of that combined with some of the major airports, I don't think we've seen a lot of significant delays at St. John's International Airport. But they are still happening in different airports in the country and around the world. But showing up to not being able to get a taxi is also not great. All right, let's move on. We've heard this story many times, and I suppose it's understandable where the focus would be on healthcare workers and other immigrants coming from war-torn Ukraine, and how many of them may indeed have training as a healthcare professional in their home country. You don't need me to remind you of the story, but the focus on Ukraine is, I guess, understandable, but there are immigrant medical graduates around the country from a variety of countries who have training where they came from to be a doctor, LPN, whatever, a nurse, whatever the case may be. So we've got to understand exactly what's holding them back and why it takes so long, and I get it. You can't just say, well, you were a doctor in Kiev. Well, here's your white coat. Off you go, Health Sciences Center. It's right there on the parkway. We have to make sure their accreditation and their training is up to Canadian standards and they pass all the tests. And yes, language proficiency is part of it, but it obviously just takes too long. So the minister responsible, now Tom Osborne, met with Ukrainian healthcare workers last week in conjunction with the college. That's the organization that deals with accreditation and testing and what have you. You know, it's not to say we fast-tracked it to the point where we put ourselves at any unnecessary risk, but certainly it needn't take years and years and years and needn't take all the thousands of dollars to get the test and access to the test and get yourself back in a white coat and get back into a hospital or clinic or whatever the case may be. So if you want to tackle that, we can do it. The government's also talking about paying for their licensing fees. Okay. And attention to more rural, isolated parts of the province to encourage doctors to take an ER shift, an emergency room shift, $800 a day more than they would pay. So healthcare concerns are as wide as they are deep. And if you want to take it on from any angle, we can do it. Also, part of one of the news stories was the province of Nova Scotia doing some poaching, contacting them directly to woo them to that problem. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but something about that just kind of makes it a little bit uneasy for yours truly. What do you think? Let's go. I see the Premier is going to be talking with Cabinet Ministers regarding the Atlantic Growth Strategy. That's been put in place for a number of years from now, and that's every industry under the sun. One of the ministers federally uh, mentioned in the news story is Dominic LeBlanc. So whether it be some sort of meaningful update on what is just political grandstanding and branding exercise at this point regarding the Atlantic Loop. Now, they've doubled down to say that they're cleanly interested in it as a nation-building exercise. Get like the province of Nova Scotia, off a coal-fired generation for electricity, buzz, yeah. But add to the local conversation about growth opportunities. The government needn't pretend that they're metro business solutions. And doing your business plan and holding everybody's hand, the private sector needs to do all their particular work, their due diligence, and come to the table prepared and to execute the proposal. But especially when the province finds itself in a spot of equity. Whether it be with Green Valley Beef, a conversation we had last week with Troy Humber from that organization, they had invested over $1.2 million, the province in for over $720,000, for an abattoir, out in Central, that could have provided 10% of the red meat consumed in the province. It's at a, a complete standstill. The family and the company says it's over. They're not going back at it. 
When we're involved, we have to make sure that the various government departments and whatever assistance and guidance can be put in place before we find ourselves at loggerheads. Same thing, same thing with some of these hydrogen plays and mining opportunities. And again, I don't expect the government to do everything on my behalf if I want to strike up a new business, agriculture or otherwise. But we can't have stories like that. You know, it's, it's impossible to have on one side of the coin attention to food security or insecurity, security and reliability of supply, and then see something like this abattoir go away. Hopefully it's not gone. Now, the government says that the company hasn't lived up to their end of the bargain with a response to the environmental assessment, but there's still a lot of tangles and gray areas and contradictions inside that story as well. Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's go. Executives from Rogers Communications will be addressing a parliamentary committee today regarding the massive outage that disrupted not only banking and individuals, but it was a huge problem. 911 services and the like. They got a lot, a lot of explaining to do. They say it was worth a software update issue. All right. We've got a top-heavy telecom industry here anyway. So Rogers has to show that they understand what happened and will invest in the safeguards to ensure it doesn't happen again. But I think it brings upon another question about what was the CRTC approval of Rogers Communications buying Shaw. Now, Shaw, the old owners of Freedom Mobile, the in fourth, a distant fourth place in telecom provision in the country, but it just puts the concentration that much bigger in the hands of the so-called big three. You know, whether that be price point for me and you and what we pay for those types of services and just how many are impacted if and when one of the big three exposed, are exposed to a problem like Rogers was, but that's not good enough. All right, and of course, the Pope is here in the country. The uh, apology come to residential school survivors today. We'll see how that unfolds and the reaction from the community. And there's a question as to whether day school survivors will also be included in this particular apology. People will always say, well, what's an apology have to do with it? How does that make anyone's life better? How does that repair the irreparable damage suffered at the hands of so many people here in the country, indigenous peoples? Well, it's hard to do anything in the road of truth and reconciliation without acknowledging your role and to apologize for. Now, it's not for me to say whether or not the apology is going to be good enough and or accepted or how people are going to react, but if you want to bring it forward and your thoughts on the matter this morning, let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I spoke with you on Friday. I have to apologize because I am going through COVID. And okay. Reason be, and so I was very nervous. Now we talked about the, the rendering plants and everything. Oh yeah, the and rendering idea, sure. Yes. So now I made an argument, uh, not an argument, uh, presentation to you about the farm that they're going to put here and. On Black, uh, over on the ridge off of Black Dark Pond where they're going to use pesticides and they're running into the river. Now, my other argument is we have another farm down at the other end of the pond that has been shut down for three years and it was going to be an organic farm. And it was taken to court by a lawyer down there on the road 
okay, saying that he was going to use pesticides and everything. Now, for three years, that said, idle, nothing happening. And thing is, I spoke with Dwight Snow from the agriculture, the agriculture representative for this area. And he himself said, I had a legitimate argument that if you're going to put pesticides over there, you allow it. How come an organic farmer cannot get his farm up and running? That's what I like to know, because they went to court with him. They exhausted his funds. They exhausted the town's funds fighting this in court. And today, we're sitting with a farmer over there that he had to prove himself with. It was going to be has cap berry. And he had to put it in the ground. And he had to prove that it would survive in Newfoundland. He did his due diligence. He put 10 years of research into this to go ahead and do it. Now, Pat, what I can understand is if that's going over there and they shut him down over here, there's something wrong with this. Well, it's hard to say from this far afield as to what should or should not happen on these fronts, but when you have organic operations, which have a much different philosophical and practical approach to farming, uh, you know, especially as it pertains to the runoff into the water table or into the rivers or into the ocean, what have you. So I'd like to know a bit more about it. I just want to give folks some context, Tom, if they hadn't heard uh, your comments last week. Some of it stemmed from the conversation we had about Green Valley beef and the standoff that they're having with the government is how to deal with the waste product, how to deal with the, the carcasses of the animals themselves. The alternative that was offered to the company that was going to operate up by Northern Arm, I think, was to bring the carcasses in to the incinerator on Brookfield Road, even though the Canadian Food Inspection Agency says they don't have a permit to incinerate animals at that facility. So other abattoirs in the province, they are... Uh, composting and burying in a trenching system, they're the animals that they've brought through the abattoir. Your thought was that why don't we have a rendering plant, which was an excellent one, and I gave it a bit of thought over the weekend. So it's not just for carcasses coming from slaughterhouses or abattoirs or farms. It could be used for roadkill, right? It could used to be all sorts of dead animals. It could be uh, products that go, the, the carcass goes in the door, different products come out, including biodiesel and other products that are used for human uh, industries and consumption. So all dead livestock, all of the dead horses, dead farm animals, roadkill, everything can go through a rendering plant. So as opposed to people having to come up with thoughts about one area or another and one runoff or another and uh, trenching and compost and burying animals, if there was a rendering plant like there is in highly concentrated industrial areas or agricultural areas in the country, why don't we have one was an excellent question, one I'm trying to get an answer to. Okay. <clears throat> and my second thought is I would like to uh, stress that this organic farm should go ahead because Dwight Snow himself spoke with the owner of that farm and he looked at it and he said, you have an ingenious idea of how you're planting. 
he couldn't believe it, and he would back him. And he will back me for my argument here. If you want, Paddy, I can give you a little bit of my background. I have a very special gift. I'm a very intelligent person. Do you have any experience in farming? No, but I will say this. As a young child, my mentor, you know, everyone else knows. At the time, that person was going to university. His name was Rex Murphy. He spent all his time with me. He saved him what my intelligence was. All right. And I would like you to call him and ask him because I had to leave Newfoundland because of what went on between 1974 and 1978 to all the young girls that were, believe me, Patty. I'm not sure what we're talking about now, to be honest. Um, well, I'm leading into something that has to be, will be addressed, but we'll, we can deal with that. But Rex Murphy, hmm. and I'm trying to open up my mind. <clears throat> and the second person who can endorse my intelligence. Okay. Do you, do you want me to continue? Well, I mean, I don't know what, no one's questioned whether or not you know what you're talking about. No one's questioned whether or not you should be able to chime in on uh, suggesting a rendering plant or an organic farm or those type of disconnects that we see out there in the way the proposals are handled. So you don't need to justify whoever thinks you're smart to me. That's just no, not part of what we do. No. We don't do that type of testing on the air. If someone's talking about something very specific about, for instance, healthcare okay. and medical training and uh, suggestions and opinions about therapeutics and what have you, then it's, it's nice to know what people's background is. But I'll give you the last word, Tom, before I have to take another call. Well, I do hope I will be sending you off some emails of the other situation, the Bob, but it's been taken over by somebody else. Uh, all the information that went in about a boy here, <clears throat> I will send it to you, the okay. emails, and you can definitely look at it. And the person who owns the farm went to school with you in grade 12. Okay. And you reach out your arm and touch him on the shoulder. But I don't know what we're talking about, though, Tom. But it's a little bit of a circular chatter now. I don't know. I went, to, a lot of, a I went to school with a lot of people. Chatter. Well, he said it in front of you in your class. Anyway. Okay. Thanks for this, Tom. I hope we do get a rendering, Patty. I really do. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Margaret, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, you're going to have to forgive me. This is my first time calling into your show. You take your time. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, concerning a fundraiser for the people in Ukraine. And uh, I'll read what I have here. It's, uh, it's going to be held today, Monday, July 25th at 1 p.m. at the Worsley Park Club. It's going to be a card game of eight games, 120s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's starting at 1 p.m. and the cost is $10. Bring your own cards and baskets. Tea and coffee will be provided. And 100% of this is going to be 
donated to the Red to the Red Cross to be used in Ukraine, and also will be we have prizes donated, which will be put on tickets during the card game. So just a reminder to people, uh, you know, come out and support us. It's a worthwhile cause. Uh, if you can bring a friend or two, and everybody's welcome. And if you need any information, you can call 631-1588. All right, I was just jotting down that number quickly, 631-1588. So you're playing 120s. Yeah, okay. You say you're playing eight games. So if I do I show up with a partner? Do I get a assign somebody when we show up? I guess we're playing partners. No, you just show up, and, and we always um, make sure that uh, you're put at the table. You know, you get someone to play with. Sure. Yeah, you know, there's always a... You know, some people who come alone or come with two or three—it doesn't matter. Just come out, and we and we'll uh, and we'll make sure that you get a game of cards. It sounds fun. I mean, I, everyone who listens to this program knows I appreciate a game of growl. One twenty is my favorite card game. So when you say yeah. to win, so uh, can I lose the game by going out the back door? Uh, one hundred twenty in the hole. No, and uh, the way it is, it's played. Uh, it, it's played like. Uh, we play at a table mostly the six. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's five. Okay. And the person, the person at the end of the card game with the highest score. Now you could, you could uh, at the end of and you play six rounds and then you know you change oh. partners. Yeah. Okay. And you could uh, end up with two hundred, and I could end up with five hundred at the end of the, at the card game or whatever. Understood. Yeah, I was wondering how you went about counting how when a game ended, if it was the first partners to one twenty or someone out the back or what have you. So that helps for folks who are yeah, wondering and, that too. And we also play for the most uh, times you get the ace of hearts, and the most time you go. Uh, 30 for 60s. We even had that. So that's pretty interesting. <laughs> You'll get some aggressive <laughs> players looking to win that 30 for 60 prize. Why not? <laughs> yeah, it sounds yeah, fun. So where where and when? One more time. Together. I'm sorry, Margaret, yeah, what you say? The Worsley Park. It's at the Worsley Park Club in CBS. Sounds great. Listen, thanks for the call this morning as a first time, or good luck with it. If you want more information about this fundraiser for Ukraine, then it's going to be, all you have to do is call 631-1588. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, yeah, and the start now won't PM. Sounds great. Okay, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, there you go. Good stuff. Uh, Robin says that the Department of Agriculture on Brookfield Road now has the, ca- uh, the capability to incinerate large animals, a service offered to her last year for the first time in 30 years of owning horses. As it related to the alternative offer to Green Valley Beef at the time, even the CFI said, CFIA said, that they don't have the permits and the, ca- uh, the capacity to do that for him. But if that's changed since then, I appreciate the information. A- and again, so got the email. is predictable stuff. doesn't matter how clear you try to be. Is especially when the government finds themselves in an equity position for one industry or another. And that's always a tricky piece of business, right? People will say, if your business model doesn't stand on its own two feet, then it's not a really a business. And if we're in industries where the overseer or the regulator is the government, then being in bed with an equity stake is also potentially problematic. I totally get it. Most of the oversight, especially with the, in, the incineration of the animals, however they deal with it, a lot of it will come with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. There is environmental assessment that has a provincial oversight, of course. And I said clearly that we don't need and want the government to do all of the heavy lifting, all of the work to ensure that one business or another gets going. But when we find ourselves in complex, long roads where significant monies have been invested by the private sector and the government, 
making sure that every effort is made and taken so that investment doesn't go by the wayside, the jobs created and the tax base expanded doesn't go by the wayside, that the provision in this case of more foods and a reliability of and domestic production is achieved, then efforts have to be conducive with what the positive outcome will be. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of show, obviously, love to speak with you. Pick up the phone and give us a shout. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just very quickly, um, so I, I usually pepper the top of the preamble with some reference to sports, athletics, some wins and losses and the like. And uh, an emailer, just anonymous, no name assigned to it, said, I must hate bowling. I don't know how anyone figured that out because I didn't mention any of the achievements and the wins and the gold medals that we uh, achieved in the Atlantics most recently, which is a funny issue because I saw it on the front page of the sports page uh, of the Telegram on the weekend. I had it set aside to bring in to the program this morning, forgot it on the counter. So if I don't get to something you think is important and you want to hear a shout-out to your friend, your daughter, your son, whatever, send me the info. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the past president of the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Agriculture. That's Marv Wiseman and Ron Clicker. Uh, morning, Marv. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Hey, look, I, I just um, felt compelled to, uh, you know, to call with regard to the Green Valley beef situation. Um, having dealt with um, this is probably maybe the number one issue that I dealt with for all the years that I was president of the Federation of Agriculture and a lot of involvement. And by the way, um, this is not the first uh, abattoir or operation, um, a vertically integrated operation right from the pasture up, you know, to the to the front end sales that we've seen bite the bullet. Uh, I heard you mention in a conversation on Friday when you used to get your uh, beef uh, and the ghouls from a guy named Harry. Yeah, Windy Farms, well, I think it was called. Yeah, Windy Meadows Farms. And, uh, you know, it's... Um, yeah, Harry Tobin, of course. Uh, I work with him uh, very much uh, on his issue, and it was a beautiful concept. Uh, Angus beef, uh, you know, in the back, and uh, the slaughter, uh, slaughterhouse uh, to go with it, uh, albeit uh, fairly small to medium, but nevertheless because of, well, government bureaucracy and the rules. It wasn't about the logistics and the costs and the operational cost of doing it. It was it was about the, the government's bureaucracy. It was about the you know the, the, the level of, of regulations and of course uh, without getting into all the intricacies of, of levels of inspection, which in which there are three by the way in this country, right from voluntary to, to uh, provincial mandatory right up to federal inspection, CFI inspection. Uh, and of course, Newfoundland having voluntary inspection, that didn't go in his favor. It worked against him, but also the stringent rules and regulations that uh, he ran into. And of course, we had a, a, another operation um, in the, Mr. Green uh, on the Cabot uh, Trail going out to, to Bonavista, and it got him to a couple million dollars. And of course, uh, he walked away a broken man from uh, from the, uh, essentially the same thing. And here we're seeing it again. I really thought that we had this thing solved. I was involved with uh, Troy, trying to mitigate the situation to, uh, right up to the Premier's office, in fact, uh, last fall. And I, I really felt that it uh, that we had uh, we had a breakthrough. But, uh, you know, given the two years 
that uh, Mr. Hummer had uh, had worked on this and the money that was spent uh, in the process that uh, the waiting game that uh, ensued after my involvement just uh, simply was a straw that broke the camel's back. It just simply, uh, it was untenable to, to carry on in the fashion. And I can only hope, by the way, that uh, a couple of similar, very similar operations, the same model that's uh, being conducted in the part of the province as we speak, uh, is not going to uh, come to the, to the same ending. So, you know, let's take this as a listen and try to see if we can clean up some of that uh, those pieces that's gone by the wayside. Now, inside of the world of food safety and security and inspection and oversight, look, it's, it's important to get it right for every reason someone can imagine. You know, some of the regulatory issues and the infringements, if I remember correctly, one that came out of, I think it was Harry's Farm, was the proximity of the knife cleaning machine to a table or something. And, you know, yeah. once that starts to <laughs> spiral, then the next thing you know, businesses without cash flow positive positions, they find themselves up against it. And all it takes is a bit of uncertainty, whether it be from the buying public and or continued investigations or inspections. And the next thing you know, the retail outlet out front is closed for 30 days. End. The end mm. as quick as that. So it can happen very quickly. Um yep. The government will tell you that they don't have the appropriate reaction to their comments regarding environmental assessments, the need to have a consultant on site, runoff for the bearing and all those things. Do you know any more about that, Murph? Because if we're told that every other abattoir has the same approach to discarding the carcass, what makes Green Valley beef any different? Where did we go wrong here? Holy cow, man. <laughs> I, uh, pardon the expression, I, I, you know, I don't get a, a lot of it, Patty. Uh, to give you a good, coherent answer that makes sense, it, it, it's, it's beyond me. Um, you know, it has to be, we have to bear in mind, uh, and you alluded to uh, a little bit there in terms of the margins, uh, you know, the business model and so on, is it, it is really weak for the production of beef uh, in, in this province. And uh, the profits margins being where they are, you know, the idea that uh, Troy Humber would be required to uh, transport, uh, you know, his uh, SRMs, special risk materials, uh, into St. John's for incineration, it was absolutely untenable. I think Troy had quoted something like an extra $2 a pound to do that. It, ju- it just simply couldn't be done. You know, I, what, the other part about this is that as Troy was uh, trying to get his legs and move his uh, operation along, uh, he had spent several months slaughtering his beef in a slaughterhouse um, in Cormac, and that one was uh, still operating under the rules that was quite acceptable uh, by CFIA and it, and is, is doing very well. Uh, but yet those standards that was really uh, stamped and approved by CFIA and the environment of this province uh, could not be applied to to try under. I, I'm just I'm just at a loss. Uh, to, and you know, you spoke to to the president of the Beef uh, Breeders Association, um, Mr. Fagan, on Friday. Um, you know, he, he conducts a, a very similar, a little smaller uh, than what Troy was uh, involved with. And the standard that was is being applied to him and some other small slaughterhouses is a completely different standard that's been applied. Uh, to 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 try in this case and 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 I don't I don't get that part. The other part I don't get is that you know the the level of uh, mitigation that uh, that Green Valley was, was that wanted to apply that would have made its operation feasible was quite okay with CFIA. You know the leading inspection agency in this country. Uh, is uh, was at, was at variance with what the environment wanted, and uh, or was willing to 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 concede to, 
And and that that is something that tells me hey, this is not Try uh, Humber's fault that things came to this kind of a situation. And in fact, a lot of the protocols, most of the protocols that's now been applied at the, a large processing facility in Borden PEI, in other places in Quebec, in Ontario, and even in Alberta, these protocols and standards that's quite acceptable for the public uh, is not acceptable for Newfoundland and Labrador at such a small scale. And, I mean, the list just goes on and on as to, you know, why a person would be absolutely bewildered, the public, let alone the person that's involved in trying to make an operation run. I, I, you know, Troy, it, it, and what happens, it's, just, it's, it's a tragedy. It, it, it's strange. And, again, I've tried to be very clear on this. I, you know, like Minister Davis said when he called on the heels of Mr. Humber's conversation, that it's easy enough to want to blame the government I don't really care about who's to blame on those types of things. There's no upside in that for me. What I need to know is what happened, why it happened, and what we can do about it. And if that means yeah. that government or private sector or independent arms of government have equity stakes in these types of affairs, let's not just say, well, uh-oh, you know, the company's gone too far, they're not going to reopen the doors. We're in for $720,000. That gives mm-hmm. me the impetus to want to make sure that everything that can possibly be done to see that business up and running gets done. That's it. I don't care who's yeah. to blame. That's just neither here nor there for me. No. Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you, Patty. I want to make that clear. This is not about, you know, I, I've, when I contacted the Premier's office to help mitigate this situation, I'm telling you, within five minutes after I made contact, to, to the premier himself, that he had people all over this, and uh, and and you know I, I was really amazed that uh, that he jumped on it so quickly, and we got a lot a lot of attention to. It. Yeah, so so I don't want to go there, but you know there's another facet to this uh, that I know we're running out of time here. I just wanted to, and, and you know you you mentioned the idea of a rentary plant, um, uh, Patty. There's no business case for a rentary plant. Uh, in this province. It's just simply not there. You know, the, the only rendering plant we ever had was, right, say, rendering. Um, and um, it was put in by Maple Leaf Foods in the late 60s when the farm product situation was there. And th- basically they were fed, you know, by by farm products at the time, which was later, you know, it ultimately turned into country ribbon as where it is today. But uh, the kinds of products and material that uh, comes out of rendering plants, especially from dead stock and, and different species of, of animals, wheat meat, red meat, you name it, uh, it's it's just simply uh, not uh, really allowed out there. Like uh, bone meal, for example, some some of the, the fat and the lards and supplements that they use to uh, to head protein to feed coming back to other animals. That that's gone. These days are gone. So. So really, the business case is not there. But what the, the only, as close as we can come to any kind of a business case, is to integrate the idea of anaerobic digesters to deal with dead stocks. And there is one right now that's been established on the West Coast at a, a very large dairy farm that seems to be, and I don't know all the details, seems to be very uh, working very well and economically as well. It, it will take dead stock. It will take uh, manure. It'll take fish. It'll take, and you know, it it, it does cost money it you know and i know the federation of agriculture did a feasibility study on an anaerobic digester with the idea that we would you know kind of centralize it say one for the avalon one for central one for the west coast if you know what i mean and we spent in in fact in excess of a hundred thousand dollars to look at the feasibility and and it was feasible and the idea is that it, it it produces it can produce up to three to four even five megawatts of power that can be integrated into the grid and it beca- can become self-sustainable. A bit marginal, but self-sustainable. But look at the service that it would apply. 
And, and I think uh, waste management, the waste management uh, system in this province needs to look at that. Uh, they've said themselves over and over again that they have no capacity to handle all the uh, organic material uh, that's, uh, that comes from, from this province, and especially dead stock. And I really believe that when you look at all of the material that can be put into anaerobic digesters, that this can become part and parcel of our waste management plan easily without an entrepreneur having to take it on in, in cases where it's, it's fairly marginal. And so we can have some discussion about that a little bit more, but, uh, Patty, uh, it, it, is, it, it has to become a part and parcel on service and so on. Add that kind of a system being in place, then Triumvir's uh, uh, problem w- w- would have been solved, w- without a doubt. Sure, and I'm, I'm, it's always about critical mass. It's all about volume to make anything feasible as a business. My end thought on that was, if it wasn't a standalone, say, I'm the proponent and I propose we build a rendering plant and I manage it and own it and reap the profits from it and all the overhead, what have you, but in the world where we have so many different entities sharing the same concern, add up all of their costs, even if it was something like a co-op model, because it's a product or, pardon me, a, a process they can all avail of and see an upside from, that was where I was going. I had no idea what the numbers yeah. looked like because, of course, yeah. I haven't tried to put it together. Uh, more yeah. appreciate the time. We'll have to leave it there for the morning. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll have more discussion, Patty. Thank you for the time. Appreciate my, it so My much. pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. All right, welcome back to the program. Someone's just picked up on the fact that I mentioned the co-op with the possibility of a rendering plant. If we don't necessarily have a standalone business model that makes it a profitable enterprise, because, of course, we have a large, large geographical issue here, so farms are far afield. So someone picked up and said, you know what? It's a surprise that there's not more of an approach to co-ops in a variety of different industries in the province, and I think the person is right. We have some glaring examples of success, whether it be uh, on Fogo Island, whether it be the Labrador Shrimp Company. You know, for some places that I've seen, it become more and more difficult, based on, yes, critical mass, and based on the numbers of people working in whatever industry, farming, fishery, and otherwise, if there was a way to share costs. Now, some of this requires some regulatory issues, right, to be addressed. Like, for instance, in the fishery. Without a pragmatic approach to bycatch, what that means, and without a realistic approach to the buddy-up system, which is much more in line with cooperatives than it would be for everyone has a standalone enterprise that they'll make or break based on their own accord, their own deep pocketbooks, their own individual quotas, what have you. But maybe it's a bigger conversation that can indeed be not a savior, because there's no real such thing as the savior of an industry or, or a community. Just not one thing can be part of it, but maybe the co-op can be a bigger part of it. All right, let's see here. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at vocm.com. How are we doing on the phone, Fonts? We're going to take a break for the news. We appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Didn't want to give them short shrift as we head into the 10 a.m. news, but when we come back, we're talking mental health and then about the Atlantic Ocean. What about it? We'll find out. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Gary, you're on the air. Hey, doing this morning, Patty? Doing okay. How about you? Uh, not too bad, boy. Uh, I'm calling about my 13-year-old son, uh, He's a very sick boy. Uh, he got ADHD. Now, he won't take his medication or nothing like that. 
he took off from the house. He went with his grandmother. Um, and after going to uh, uh, social workers, child protection, the RCMP, I can't get no help anywhere. He's getting sicker and sicker every day. His grandmother, he, he took off from the house. He went with his grandmother. Now, his grandmother won't do nothing, like, help him, like I, I told her. I said, if you don't get Mason help, I said, he's going to end up dead. Or I said, or in jail. And and I said, and she said, well, that's all I can do about that. I said, well, that's not a good attitude about that. Uh, you know, he uh, he's getting sick. I'm trying, what I'm trying to do, Patty, I'm trying to get him into the Janeway again, right? And everywhere I goes, I can't get no help. He's after saying he's going to commit suicide. He's after admitting that, right? Okay. Uh, and I called RCMP on that. And they went and see him about it, and they come back to me, and he said, uh, "They say, Gary, we uh, we don't see enough evidence to bring him, bring him to hospital." I said, "Well, he's after saying he 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 uh, he wants to commit suicide. You know, that should be enough there to bring him to the hospital." Absolutely. So, what's the grandmother saying in this circumstance? Like, well, does the young fellow respond differently to you than he does to Nan, or where are we with that family relationship where someone can convince him that you come with me? as opposed to the police needing to bring you somewhere uh, because mom and dad and nan or whoever care about you, then come no, with me. I, and we present at the Janeway. We present at the Waterford, whatever it takes. Well, uh, well, Patty, his grandmother passed away in April. Oh, my. Right? Okay, so, but this is, well, what I'm going to talk about is going on for years and years, not just since April, right? He's going on, he's after beating everything up. And, uh, you know, when he gets, when, when he gets upset, uh his grandmother goes out and buys an expensive stuff just to calm him down, right? You know what I mean? And uh, I went out to Paradise. Where he, was, he, was, he, was, he was living out in Paradise. Then I went out to Paradise after his mother died and took totally control of Mason and brought him out living with me here in Marystown, with Southam. And I had him back in school, had him go and see our counselor. Uh, and, you know, he was, right, he was right on the right track. And then his grandmother moved to Marystown. And then he ran to her then, right? And uh, she don't say she's seventy five years old. Hey, she can't look at them. She's not the best self herself, right? And uh, and he's getting more violent every day. Like he's hanging around with a bad bunch out around Marystown now. And uh, I don't know what it's, like. Patty, I figure the child protection step in here. Like uh, he's actually assaulting his grandmother. She called me uh, here a couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago, and uh, told me to come down. Mace was locked in his bedroom, and he. He's after spitting in her face and pushing her and tipping over the coffee tables and going going right off his head, right, you know, and telling me where to go and how to get there. And I just can't. And everywhere I go is Patty Lake. I can't get no, no, it's a brick wall, right? And this mental health situation, this is a very serious situation, right, 13-year-old boy. All I want now is him to get in trouble and be in the system and all uh, this kind of stuff, right, you know. I understand. Right. It's hard to know because the families are a tricky piece of business at the very best of times, and how and why and who can be part of bringing him back to just listening to you and understanding that you care enough and you understand what he's going through and simply want to get him some help. It's not an effort to get him punished. It's not an effort to turn the no. police on him. It's an effort to protect himself, maybe from himself and from some of the bad people that he's spending time with because we can tell a lot about our, our children, about you know with who they spend their time with. So, boy, I wish I could say, look, here's what you need or have to do, because 
it's not as simple as it should be on this front. It's interesting and very troubling that if he said out loud that he's willing and wanting to hurt himself, the police have gone and spoken to him, and that hasn't seen any action at all. No, and you know, no one ever wants to propose that we pick up people bag of bones and we stick them in the back of a police cruiser and we drag them to a hospital. That's not what we're talking about. We're trying to talk no. about who we can find that the child will respond to. Who we can find that the child will trust enough, and it should be you, and it should have been Nan, and I'm really sorry to hear about your loss, but what we need is for the young person to get the help. It's not about picking the right entity. It's just trying to find a way to break through so that he hears you and listens to you and knows that it's just about getting some help. It's not about saying you're a bad child and you've lost your way. There's ways to get back on the rails, and we hope that's still available for him. So where is he now, and where are you? I'm out in the South Han area with Bjorn, right? Okay. And and he's, uh, well, that's where he was living with me for a while when his mother passed away. And then he, all of a sudden his mother decided to move to, or not his mother, his grandmother decided to move to Marystown, right out of the blue. So when she moved to Marystown, that's when everything went off the rails, right? And, uh, and she and she won't go get him to help Petty. I'm after asking her, telling her, uh, like, we got, like, I lost my son dearly, right? Uh, but... I can't, she won't do nothing, she, she won't help him, she won't bring the counselling, she won't uh, talk him into going, you know, at, uh, going to the Janeway or go see somebody and get him back on his medication because there's more around with Mason now than ADHD. Uh, they got to see him. And Patty, you wouldn't believe the weapons I found in his bedroom and I cleaned out his bedroom, right? And I, and I phoned our CMP about that and they told me that don't give back to him, no, I'm talking about knives now. Uh, and, uh, and uh, destroy him. So that's exactly what I did, uh, right? But he was ordering this stuff off Amazon, and his grandmother was paying for it, right? Uh, so, you know, he's a very sick child. He's getting sicker and sicker every day. And uh, like, I don't know what to do by it. Like, it's it's a hard situation to be in, right? You know, thirteen years old. Is he still in school? Paddy, he was out when he was out in paradise. He was out of school. They, they, she, she never had him going to school. But he was out of school. Yeah, when I brought him to Marystown, I had him in school, back in school again, driving to school, picking him up. Pappy's lunch is ready. His clothes, everything all, all done, and that. And uh, oh yes, yeah, so I had him back in school, grade seven, and uh, he finished off his grade seven, and uh, and that. And uh, but I had him, I had him on the right track until his grandmother moved out here, and and she's the one that. that like when he gets upset, she'd just go to Walmart and buy him three or four out of games and just spawn them right and got them ruined, uh, right? And he knew he knew where to run to when she moved out her. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I can't beat no. It just wanted me to talk to talk to me Beagle and, and talk to her because there's there's no. She said to me, "Leave me and my grandson alone." Well, I'm sorry, that's my son you got there, right? And he and he needs serious help, right? Right? And, 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 and it, like you just said, all I am trying to do, Patty, I'm not trying to hurt the child or put him in the system or anything. I'm trying to get him into the Janeway. And I reported everything to social workers, uh, uh, child protection when he, when he assaulted her. And no way, but they won't, no, they won't step in at all. And the RCMP won't step in. Nobody step in. Right? I tell you what, and I don't know if this person is going to be able to do anything very specific for you, but to help walk you through the system, to help navigate it and see where you can turn to next, this is a fellow named Barry Hewitt. 
He's a mental health and addiction systems navigator with Eastern Health, so he's been through all of this. He's, he's seen and heard every single story. So I'm going to give you a number. Call and ask to speak with Mr. Hewitt. Yeah. And see if that offers you any help because, as I said, he knows where to turn and what to do. So I don't, know, I, I, I don't know where to turn anymore, Patty. I'm after, I'm after going everywhere with this spot and uh, trying to get him the help he needs. And his grandmother won't won, won help me out at all, like, you know, to try to talk to my stuff like that. I don't know where it's turned by. So I said, I'll call you this morning, see if you've got some direction to give me. I, I do. I'm going to put you onto this fellow, Barry Hewitt, because I think he's been very helpful to many, and hopefully yeah. he can be the same to you. So do you have a pen? I'll give you a number. Yeah, oh, yes, i got a pen and paper here. job ready for you. Okay, so 752. 752. 3916. 3916. If you need a toll-free number, I have that too, and it's one eight seven seven. One eight seven seven nine 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 seven five eight nine seven five eight nine. Yes, Patty, because this is a very situation. By like, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get him before he gets in trouble, before he hurts somebody or hurts himself. Right? You know what I mean? Like, he, like he, he said he wants to be where his mother is. To I, there's nothing around here for me anymore. I want to be where, where mom is at. Well, I'm, that's a very sad situation that she passed away. Only fifty year old. Everybody feels for that. But this is going on for years, Patty. The fighting, the arguing, the big one, it's going on. Not with me. I'm divorced eight years now, right? But back and forth, back and forth, seeing Mason. But this is going on for years with Mason, right? With the ADHD and whatever else is going on with him. Like, I don't know. Until we get get some help into the Janeway. Right? Gary, listen, um, I, I tell you what. I really hope that you call that number and speak with Mr. Hewitt. Oh, I will. I will. It doesn't just, call, yeah, it doesn't just deal with individuals, deal with the family circumstances, what might be the yeah. right approach to mental health, and ser- mental health services that's right for you, right for your yeah. child, where to get them, what to do next. So do that and get back to me and let me know where you are. If this doesn't get any hopeful or positive outcome, I'll keep thinking as to where to send you next. But I do think of Mr. Hewitt as an excellent place to start. Thanks, now, Patty. Appreciate it, buddy. You, you take good care and good luck. Let me know what happens. I will, Patty. Okay, thanks. Okay, Gary. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, before we do get to the break, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Carrie. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Um, I just want to first give my condolences to the previous caller that that is a really tough situation and uh yeah my heart really goes out to them um but yeah i guess i'm calling about something different uh the i just want to invite you and your call and your listeners today uh to the very exciting event coming up next week on the rights of the atlantic ocean campaign that the social justice cooperative is kicking off This is a campaign that's really inspired by the Center of Democratic and Environmental Rights in the United States. They've had a lot of success with uh, legislating the rights of the environment, um, specifically in municipalities, so that communities have control about what kind of developments are happening in their community. But they have also... um, helped consult like entire countries on like how to legislate the rights of the environment into their constitution. And we're really lucky to have uh, two of their lawyers, Thomas Lindsay and Marie Merrigill, who are kind of like world leading experts who are going to be at this event and talk to us about the work that they've done, the successes that they've had and what a campaign like this could really look like in St. John's. So what does rights of the Atlantic Ocean mean? Yeah, it's really about thinking about the Atlantic Ocean not just as an object or like is but as some as a 
entity that has its own rights because, you know, I think people would be surprised here in Canada that we actually, like, we don't have a right to clean air or clean water. And our our environment is really kind of at the mercy of developers who want to pollute it and destroy it in the name of profit. And this is a way of pushing back against that kind of development and saying, no, like we, we deserve a healthy environment. And if we are going to prosper on this land, on this, by the sea, then we're going to need a healthy ecosystem. And by legislating this kind of right, we can then use the court system to challenge development and to say, no, if you, if you go ahead with this, this pollutes the, the water, it harms the ocean ecosystem, and so you would be um, hurting the rights of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, so every- it's very innovative, very new. Yeah, fair enough. Look, everybody owns the ocean, yet nobody owns it. We know so much about what happens on land and very little in the big scheme of things about what happens in the, in the world's oceans. Very little. We all pretend that we've got all of this intricate science where we've got a full understanding. We don't even know every species that inhabits the ocean, let alone the impact on marine species with one thing or another from seismic to fishing to oil to anything else that people would like to uh, refer to and the, the warming conditions and sea ice and fight. Oh, I won't get started here with the litany <laughs> of the list that I've got to tip my tongue. So, okay, uh, where, what is happening for this particular fundraiser? Yeah, so it's happening on Monday, August 2nd, uh, 7 p.m. at 30 Harvey Road. Um, all the information is on our website at www.atlanticocean.ca. And, yeah, it's a fundraiser for the Social Justice Cooperative of Newfoundland Labrador and for the Grand River Keepers of Labrador as a way to help kind of kickstart this campaign. You'll be able to see the first draft of this bill that we'll be presenting to the city of St. John's. And there's going to be, like, entertainment and food. And, yeah, we would really appreciate, you know, I know a lot of folks out there are seeing the impacts of the environment um, kind of globally. And we really want to do our part to protect it here and at large. So would really appreciate if folks could come out. Do you have the money earmarked for anything in particular, a specific project? Because, of course, when we're talking about awareness and the ocean and 75% of the planet is covered by water, what do you have up your sleeve for next steps with whatever money you can raise? Yeah, so the Social Justice Cooperative Newfoundland Labrador, we are a social and environmental justice advocacy organization, and the money would go to help us like pay for staff, to hold events, to um, to kind of increase our capacity to do things. We're doing a lot of things on like volunteer labor, and it is a challenge, as you can imagine. So this would really help kind of increase our capacity as an organization. And we'll be sharing the funds with the Grand River Keepers of Labrador, who are doing their best to protect the what is known as the Churchill River. Um, that has, yeah, it seems like it's gotten two dams and there might be a third coming up. So hopefully we'll be able to stop that as well. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the event, Carrie. Oh, I think I lost you there, Patty. Okay, sorry. Uh, oh. I said good luck with the event. I appreciate the time and hopefully it's a roaring success. Stay in touch. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go and take a break. When we come back, Stephen's in the queue. He's a former farmer. We'll hear what his former farming life looks like. And Suzanne talks about some year, uh, come home year troubles that she and maybe her community are experiencing. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. 
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Stephen, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Paddy. How are you? Great, thank you. How about you? Good, good. I'm just calling... Uh, I run a farm out in Harbour Bay, Spaniard Bay area. Mm-hmm. And I had 30, uh, close to 35 head of cattle like that. But uh, there recently, back in June, I had to sell them because I was uh, I was kicked off a pasture for no reason. The Bay Roberts pasture in uh, in Country Road. And I'm after making calls to uh, and emails to uh, uh, keep hearing. And I went and visited the MHA, which is Pam Parsons, and the minister also. And I never got no answer back from nobody. Uh, only Freeman uh, Forsley from the opposition. And the answer he gave me was the pastures are ran by municipalities right now, which there is no pastures ran by municipalities. Okay, so how long did you have your cattle uh, grazing that pasture? I've been in that pasture for the last four years. And did anybody, yeah. like, did the ownership change hands, or who actually yeah. owns, without yeah. a name, so a private individual owns the land? Right now, nobody owns that, that pasture. No, uh, They're trying to get a new committee, I think, up and running. But as of right now, it is ran by the Newfoundland Labrador Cattlemen's Association. And uh, uh, they, that's, that's who's running that pasture now. But they haven't been active since... Uh, April 18, 2018, and uh, that was the last meeting we, we had in Carbonair. But anyway, they're, they're running that, that, that personnel, and I was looking for answers until why I got kicked off. Now, one of the, the committee members called me and said, well, we're not taking your cattle this year because they get, because of rumors. So I don't know what uh, what rumors were or what anything. I can't get no answers out of any, anyone. Well, I mean, rumors about you or rumors about how you treat your cattle, or what does that even mean? I, I well, I don't know. I I can't. That's all. There, someone said to me there was just uh, uh, a lot of talk going around. Was exact words that they used. So I don't know what uh, what they meant or why. You know, and I had to sell these cattle. I had to lose a lot of money on them. You know, because I go away work every year, and I'm looking looking like I said, I'm looking for answers on why I got kicked off, and and uh, and and I can't get no 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 call back, no no from nobody. Only, like I said, Freeman Forestry uh, uh, reached out to me and uh, told me it was ran by municipalities. And there is no passage ran by municipalities. So whoever he's getting his information from, whether it's the, the government of Newfoundland Labrador or, 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 or who, is very wrong information. Yeah, now it's interesting. We had uh, the gentleman who's the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Cattlemen's Association on the show last week. And it's hard for me to chime in on what rumors might be or why one decision is made or another. I have no earthly idea, but we can reach back out to them. Is there a specific name to your farming operation that I can use when I call the Cattlemen's Association? It's uh, Black Creek Farm. No, I was a part of that. Last time we had that meeting, I was a part of that. I was a... Uh, on that, uh, not not on the executive, but uh, I was a part of that meeting. You know, the, the the one before that, back when we had it in Gander about seven years ago, I was the vice president. Okay. And uh, another guy was the president. But you now, like since that, we had a meeting in, in Carabinier, and that was back in 2018. But I don't I don't even know if that's active right now. That's four years. So, and I know we have no treasurer, you know, and. Uh, uh, no secretary, they, they're not a part of that association, so it's just two people trying to run that association right now. And I, and I talked to the, uh, the, the treasurer, uh, the, and there hasn't been no, no, no money come in 
since four years. So I don't even know how you consider that a a, a committee anymore, or, or, or you know, association. Yeah, I have no earthly idea, uh, but I will see if they can offer comments about the thirty-five head of cattle at Black Creek Farm, where the uh, you are unable to put your animals on that particular piece of grazing or pasture land. So that much I could try to figure out on your behalf. So because you don't have anywhere for the animals, that means you've sold them all off, have you? Well, yeah, I just kept a few that I that I could have kept home, right? Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And you say you travel for work, or do you work offshore? You have a... No, out west. A rotational out west, okay. So I usually... No, no, not... I come for the summer, so I just uh, pasture my animals in the summer. I've been doing it so long as, so long as I've had animals. I pasture them in the summer. Yeah. And uh, bring them home in the fall, and then I, I look after them in the winter, you know? Okay. Well, I can see what I can find out is simply about the access to pasture land, because if you don't have that, then it's impossible to keep livestock, uh, cattle in particular. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Stephen? Uh, no, that that'd be it. Like I said, you know, the, the keeper, the beef industry going. It you, you got to have pasture ground, and uh, not not to be, you know, not for people to be, you know, just just booting off pastures for no for no reason at all. And and you know, they took in they took in new new people. I've been there the last four years, and they're taking in new people that that they never been on that pasture before. You know, why why is this stuff happening? Just it's not the way to move beef industry ahead. You know, but. Uh, Hopefully, like you said, maybe get some answers. I'm, way else, I'm still waiting on answers. I'm way else kicked off. Like I said, I sent emails, phone calls, and I got I got no, I got nothing. Only only the said it's ran by municipalities, and that's 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 wrong. That's very wrong information that Mr. Forsley got there from somebody. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know about the ins and the outs of that particular body of land and who owns it or operates it or has the authority to tell who can and cannot put their animals on it. But I'll see what I can figure out, Stephen. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you. Okay, Bye. take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, interestingly, we did have the Cattlemen's Association on last week, and, you know, the issue surrounding red meat. So poultry is white meat. Everything else is, is classified as red meat insofar as abattoirs are concerned, so that would include pigs even though pork is the other white meat. Let's go ahead and take a break. Suzanne, appreciate your patience. We'll hear about her come home. Your troubles right after this. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. And now welcome back. Okay, let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Suzanne. You're on the air. Cha-cha-cha. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. (laughs) (laughs) What a beautiful day again. It is. It's a little bit overcast here now as I look out the window and come out row, but plenty warm, that's for sure. Uh, Yeah, probably a bit too much. We're not used to that. But anyway, the tourists are happy. They're glad to be here. Ran into a couple last night. That's why I'm calling you today. Okay. So, um, I was out doing a little bit of volunteer work, waiting for the bus, only to find out there was no buses after 8 p.m. Now, I live here. That's a different conversation. Bad enough. So, I'm walking down Elizabeth Avenue to the East End, where I live, and I happen to run into a few folks that are here from Ontario, and they're walking towards their place of stay again because there's no bus can't get a cat can't afford gas um 
I think someone needs to have a look at this. It, it, I, w- I felt so embarrassed. Yeah, different routes have different schedules, and I think there's a difference between weekday schedules and maybe Sunday night schedules as well. There are, you're absolutely right. But it is come home here, and we have people coming here from all around the world, as well as our own people coming home. Um, I was embarrassed. Well, I mean, I just came back from a vacation, and it never ceases to amaze me the way and the people and the frequency and ease with which you're able to use public transit in other cities. Now, I know this is a relatively small city, what, 110-ish thousand people, yeah, and we're not going to have a yeah. subway, and we're not going to have all kinds of different stuff, but the Metrobus has is currently constructed. Now, there's a couple of reasons that why it doesn't have as many people using it as it should. Part of it is Metrobus. Part of it is the public. Because if we yeah. have so many people willing to say that the Metrobus is the loser cruiser, then, of course, we're kind of missing the public transportation point. You can go to another capital city, and I guess I know, again, it's not Toronto, we're not Vancouver, we're not Calgary, but you can see someone riding public transit wearing a $5,000 suit as well as someone who has a pass through social assistance. So it's an all-encompassing service that people use. Maybe because it's a little bit better and it's devised a little bit more with more ease in mind, but we've got a long way to go to uh, ensure that public transit is what we need it to be. Patty, I'm always so pleased with the fact that you you have, um, you know, some uh, obvious different digress and, and different points of view, and that. I promised these people that I would call them today. I told them, I said, this is what we do here. We love, we love our open line. And so I'm going to navigate them today. They're not going to have to get a, they're not going to have to worry about the bus. They're not going to have to worry about getting a cab. They were lucky enough to rent a car. And I'm being the Newfoundlander, the, 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 being the kind of people that we are, I'm going to navigate them uh, around the north uh, Applin, and we're going to have a great day. I'm glad that they found themselves an ambassador and a tour guide today that can alleviate some of their transportation concerns. I appreciate this this morning, Suzanne. Thanks for the call. This, this is what we do, and I'm sure. so glad they are having a good time, and um, I, I hope they have air conditioning, Patty. I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, I guess it depends on the accommodations. That's one right? thing for sure. <laughs> Thanks for this. Enjoy the day. Enjoy your day. Thank you again for everything. My pleasure, Suzanne. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, just add to it. Just imagine if your first exposure to your arrival here is can't get a taxi at the international airport. And no other viable options. Are there even hotels that have uh, uh, airport shuttles? I can go to some airports, and the first thing you do is arrive, and you see this big screen that's lit up with one hotel or another, and you go pick up the courtesy phone, you get yourself a shuttle. Anyway, let's keep going. Line number two. Doug, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks for asking. How about you? Good, thank you. Patty, I just want to change the tone a little bit when you're talking about the uh, provincial abattoirs. Uh, We have a provincial abattoir on the West Coast, and it's the food safety issue that I have a lot of concerns concerning. Uh, I'm just going to ask you a question. If you were to go to a local abattoir, and purchase some meat from there. What's your impression of what have happened to that meat as far as meeting 
uh, regulatory standards with inspections and so on. Well, I'm not 100% sure what the question means specifically, but if I see an abattoir open and a retail space in front for customers to come and buy their wares, I guess just based on what I understand to be the regulations and the in, in the uh, investigations or inspections done by the Canada Food Inspection Agency, I would hope everything's been up to snuff because the CFIA, that's their one of their very key roles. Okay. Now, as far as CFIA goes... Their big involvement, they are involved with provincial abattoirs. Mm-hmm. They do an inspection. They make sure that you're handling your uh, SRMs correctly. And they go through your plant and they do an audit, basically, of what went through your plant. But as for the meat inspection, there is no meat inspection. Provincially, there is no meat inspection, meaning that if an animal arrives at the abattoir that can be diseased, the onus is strictly on that abattoir owner to make that call, whether you put that out for human consumption or you discard that animal. Since opening our facility, we've had numerous animals. It's been a shocker to us. We've had numerous animals that we've had to condemn. We don't take it upon ourselves. We're not, we're not veterinarians. We're not meat inspectors. We, we can't make that decision on our own. In our particular case, when we have an animal that's in question, we see something that's wrong with it, we call in our farm animal vets. They come in and they make the diagnosis on that animal and sort of determine, yeah, if it has an infection, is it localized that it can be cut out and the rest of the carcass salvaged? Or does that whole animal have to be condemned because it's a systemic infection and it's gone throughout the animal? And what would it mean for the rest of your the livestock on property? Well, this this may, if it's a disease, hopefully if you've got li- livestock on property, you've got them vaccinated. Uh, we try to take one one person's animals at a time. Uh, a lot of these animals have injuries, uh, and I guess my my big concern is if the onus is on the abattoir owner. When we, the veterinarians came in, one of our questions to them is, you know, we called you guys in. How, how many other places do you uh, cater to? How many places do you visit to make this call? And they said, this is the first time we've ever been called since you opened up. When we, when we started, started the operation, we were under the impression that there was a provincial meat inspection program. And actually it's listed on the government site that there is. So we contacted them. We were told all we had to do was apply for this meat inspection program. We applied, and as a matter of fact, we applied three or four times. And finally, when all the dust settled, basically we were told there's no inspectors for a meat inspection program. So anything can go through your building, and it's the credibility of that operator to determine... uh, how to proceed. Do you call in a vet and spend that money? Do you take your chances and put it out there? Uh, I, I know there's there's products going through some of these facilities that really need need some inspection being done on. This is a question based on ignorance. I don't know the answer. So to test the meat, is it tests that are being conducted by a veterinarian? A couple of complications there is there's a shortage of veterinarians dealing with big animals in this province. Uh, is it a test for animals while they're alive, or what does a test of the product look like? Well, when, when that animal comes to your building, when you say test, 
when that building, when that animal comes to your building, because there are no inspections at this point, you take the animal on into your building if you do not see anything externally wrong with the animal. That building enters your animal, and it's euthanized. It's hung up, and you go through the process of processing it. During that process, if you come across, look, most people can recognize uh, healthy, normal anatomy. When you see something that's out of the ordinary, like anybody can identify an infection that's that's there, or see something in in the organs that doesn't look right, how do you make that determination? Is this safe to put out there, or do we need some experts to come in here and tell us that, you know, okay, this is a localized thing, or this is whatever the case may be, whatever the pathology is, the veterinarian can make that decision and determine whether that meat should be thrown in the pit or discarded or if it should go into the food chain. And here's where I have the problem. There's, there's nothing. It's all, The onus is on this abattoir owner to, to make that decision. And how how can the average person do that? Well, these are interesting and obviously important questions. So let's see if I can summarize. As a consumer who understands the, the issues surrounding food safety, security, and what have you, I should not read too much into it. Is if, if This is my takeaway. You correct me if I think I'm, I've gone too far or if I'm wrong. So I'm assuming, and we know what the breakdown of assume means, is that the CFIA has a keen eye over your operation, which includes not just the facility of the abattoir itself and the proximity of cleaners to tables, the dealing with the carcass after they have been through your facility, also to do with your retail space and testing and understanding that the product is safe for human consumption. I've given all that my... Uh, I've figured that out before I walked on property. I'm wrong, though, aren't I? You are wrong. Okay. That is not happening. Okay. That's not happening. The other issue that comes up is antibiotic residuals in the meats. Yep. How do you determine, without an inspection or whatever, that, that that's not the case? You're going by the honesty of the producer. You're going by the honesty of the plant owner. It's great if all these people are credible, but there's no checks. In our particular case, we've, we've been advocating for a meat inspection program since we opened because we were totally shocked. We, provoked, we approached the Department of Agriculture and said to them, look, we see all these problems. We've had the vet came out. She saw the problems. And we said, look, we need a meeting with CFIA, agriculture, politicians, whoever needs to be there. We need a meeting to discuss this food safety issue and try to get, try to get a better solution to what's happening here. So there was some meetings. There was some meetings set up through agriculture, CFIA, CFIA vets were involved. Everybody agreed that there was an issue. We weren't invited to the meeting, by the way. Uh, so they had their discussion, and eventually they came back to us, and we had a little meeting in Cornerbrook. At that meeting was our agricultural representative, uh, one of the managers for one of the programs at the time, and. Uh, a food safety person uh, that goes around to the abattoirs when they're being opened and basically shows you how to clean and use disinfectants and so on. So we had that little meeting. Uh, at the time, our big concern was with this food safety issue. You know, the higher powers that were in the building at the time 
didn't, I guess, think it was even important enough to come in and sit down and talk to us. Do you happen to know, Doug, if it's the same setup and circumstances in other provinces? Because not so long ago, the concern would have been for a cattle business proposal was whether or not we had enough CFI uh, staff here in the province for whether it be initial inspections or otherwise. So do you happen to know about the, the testing that happens in other provinces compared to what how you've described it this morning? I, provincially, provincially, I'm assuming that, and some of this is assumption I've we are in the process of getting a food safety program done to be HACCP certified. Uh, through the course of that program, we, we've been in contact with uh, people from, that have worked in CFI plants and so on and so forth to do, the, propose, do the, the program for us. One of these people, her husband, was a, an inspector in Nova Scotia. And it's my understanding that they went to the plant when the animals being, when the animals being put down and... Uh, inspected what was going on, inspected the carcass at that point, but basically that was the end of the inspection. But even that went a long way, I would think, because once that carcass goes in your cooler, if it's determined that it doesn't have a disease, you know, hopefully you're handling the carcass correctly from that point. You're keeping your temperatures where they're supposed to be and so on and so forth, and aging that meat. Uh, So I... uh, at least that's that's something in other provinces. But I think provincially, with most of with most of the information that I've gathered, most of the people that I've talked to, you know, there's there's things lacking, uh, probably in a lot of the provincial facilities. But I do know in Nova Scotia they are not allowed at a facility to put down an animal unless the inspector is there. Interesting stuff. It's always helpful when people with the boots on the ground, so to speak, fill us in on what we may or not be hearing or considering when we talk about, in this case, we're talking about cattle and production and abattoirs and the testing regime associated with Doug. I really appreciate your time this morning. Would you like to add anything else, sir, before we say goodbye? I'd just, I'd just like to add something else as well, because, you know, there seems to be, you know, I, I hear it all the time. There seems to be this uh, thought out there that, we need more abattoirs. You know, I think it was last year or the year before, I think when they came out with this uh, new program to build a, a couple new abattoirs, at the time we contacted the agricultural people in this area and we wanted to know what cattle was available, say from central to taking from the central area all the way west. And they came back to us at that point and they told us there was, they thought about 160-odd cattle. Why do you need all these more abattoirs when there's not, I mean, we're running way below capacity. And if you talk of food insecurity, yeah, you can bring cattle in from the mainland and you can uh, slaughter them. But really, what's the difference then if you, do that, or if you go to Sobeys and you buy the meat, the only difference is if you go to Sobeys and buy the meat, it has went through a federal plant, and now it's been inspected and deemed safe for consumption. Yeah, you don't need abattoirs if you don't have the animals, and I guess maybe like the Green Valley beef, it was the concept of he had the abattoir, but he also had his own his own cattle, so, you know, of course, you don't need he a business to be open up that doesn't... cattle from, from outside the province, I think, but he did have some of his own cattle. That was part of it, chap. Uh, Doug, yeah. really appreciate it, sir. I'm late for the break, but you're always welcome. Oh, okay, Patty. I appreciate it. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. That's interesting.
That, and that's something that we had not considered in this conversation. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Billy, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Grand today. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. I, well, I, I was good, but... Um... Patty, I'm calling on, I guess I'm wearing two different hats here, and I want to talk to you about a lot of this uh, backbiting that's been going on in the agriculture sector at the moment. Okay. First, I'd like to address Mr. Coombs, um, because the pasture he's speaking about is actually the one I'm the chair of. Um, oh, I, that was a call we had just a little while ago, but the fellow couldn't yes. put his animals on? Okay, fair enough. Yes. Um, that pasture itself was taken back by Crown Lands. Now, what people have to understand is Crown Lands is in charge of pasture land. It has nothing to do with agriculture. So what happens, you get an LTO from Crown Land and your committee, if, which is the way they want it now, is a committee running it, you have your bylaws. And everybody is governed by those bylaws. Now, when it comes to Mr. Coombs, he seems to be a little careless with the truth, and he doesn't tell you everything. Um, when the Cattlemen Association took over, because it wasn't allowed to just go into uh, an individual's hands or a group's hands, it had to go into industry and then back up for proposal. And what had happened is that the group now that has it, which I'm the chair of, High Gain Cattle Incorporated, we got the lease. We got the LTO on that pasture. We have a whole new committee, and it's running phenomenal. And we have, it's, it's actually the best I've ever seen it. Now, what I want to talk about is Mr. Coombs saying, you know, he couldn't get his animals on there. The pasture can only open when the grass is ready. We can't open it before there's grass for the animals to eat. If we do, well, we'll just have to pull them out extremely early because especially in a year like this when we had a drought there'd be no grass by now if we had put animals in early now mr coombs expected us and i'm he didn't ask he expected us because he never did ask me personally as the chair he went to other people and made comments and went to the government and went to this one and went to that one but he never did approach me personally he wanted us to put his cattle in well a month ahead of everybody else's cattle and wanted the committee to feed, bring, put round bales in and to haul water in to his cattle when nobody else's cattle are in there. So he wanted preferential treatment. And when we said, no, we're not willing to do that. I mean, the road wasn't even graded. It's still not graded going into the pasture. I'm not putting a 12 or 1300 pound roll of silage up in the back of my truck bouncing over a rock road because it's not gravel it's rock to feed somebody else's cattle i'm not going at it i mean that's that's not even reasonable even asking somebody to go and haul in feed and water to feed somebody else's animals i mean that's just that's going over and above being crazy in my eyes now mr coombs you know he stirred up that much trouble for the pasture because we wouldn't go along with his idea. And like people told him, it's your choice to go out of the province to work. 
nobody else is responsible for taking care of your animals. I mean, every other farm family or farmers, if I have a, a, an important day or I have something I can't, I have to get to, my family or my friends take over taking care of my animals, and they've done it. I mean, I had a stroke five years ago, and my, between my family and friends, they took care of my animals till I was well enough to do it again. So, you know, and then he goes on and complains that, oh, he had to sell off his animals. All along, he said he had nobody to feed his animals or to take care of his animals. Now who's taking care of his animals? Is he trying to say that he's left these animals on their own device for five months that he's going to be gone away? I think he said so he sold he them. Has, no, he still has animals. Okay. He did say he did say he kept enough for at home. So what has he done? Has he left these animals on their own device, you know, out on his piece of land? I mean, I know he has sheep that roam the community. They've been attacked by dogs numerous times because he doesn't have a fence suitable to keep them in. So, you know, the man doesn't tell you the whole truth. You know, this is and this is the problem. So our committee, after him causing so much trouble and trying to cause trouble for us, we just decided he's not worth the effort. It's just, it, you know, the headaches. I mean, there's 10 pastors here on the Avalon. Out of them 10 pastures, we're the only one that were taking, was taking him in. What has happened with those other pastures? Why has he left those other pastures? Why have they kicked him off those other pastures? I don't know, which is, and I've learned my lesson here. I, I try not to make firm declarations uh, based on hearing from one person about one issue because, I mean, we all know there's a variety of angles to stories and your side, my That's side, right. and then the truth and all those types of uh, cliches that people are familiar with. So, look... I mean, and, and nor is this an area for uh, per, uh, personal or private spats to become public, but when you're called out and you feel like you've been painted in a negative light, unfairly or unfortunately or inaccurately, you're welcome to call. I'll give you the last word. I'm late for the news, Billy, but I'll let you wrap it up, sir. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, because I'm the vice chair of the Cattle Association. Now, Mr. Coombs said that, you know, he's not a, an executive member. He lied. He was voted in in 2018 as a member at large. If you go check on Cato, which is the registry of companies, for those that don't know that, you will see that the gentleman that's our treasurer has been the treasurer all along and still is our treasurer. Whether there's problems with the income or whatever, which we are working on and trying to find a reasonable solution that, you know, or an understandable solution, that has nothing to do with the pasture or him. The government has spent $80,000 on his piece of land, and he still hasn't got a, a grass growing. He had in, people in there trying to ask him or tell him why his grass isn't growing. So, you know, he, we have to be very careful here. I mean, what's going on in the Cattle Association has nothing to do with his pasture problems. His pasture problems are his alone, and he's caused them. And, yes, we did take it in November because we, we helped out a very prominent farmer in town, because he was in a fix and needed a place to put his cattle. And when okay. we decided Mr. Coombs was gone, we took his cattle in. Billy, I appreciate the perspective That's and fill in the other side. Yes. Thank you for your time. Uh, okay.
Take All care. Right. All right. Bye-bye. We are late for the news, but when we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Good morning, Mayor Rose. You're on the air. Yeah, Mr. Patty Daly, I hear you had a couple of weeks off of vacation. I hope it went well for you and your family. It went well. I needed the break, and it was a really fun time, and I'm happy to be back as well. So, Mayor Rose, you and I have spoken on many occasions, but there's been a couple of developments in the recent past. And we actually had Carl Diamond on this program to talk about the fact they finalized the deal with the town and the authority to move forward with his project. You were one of the ones who remained optimistic, even though some of uh, your fellow members of council were not necessarily in the same place. Have we advanced any further than the, uh, the announcement we recently heard from Mr. Diamond? Uh, yeah, I believe it's advancing. Uh, once they made the deal, and the deal was done on paper and done legally from an airport corporation's perspective, they still had to do the uh, closing date, you know, transfer the deed and clue up the the particulars on the deal. So uh, I've been getting some updates from Mr. Diamond. Everything's going well there. It, it, everything takes a little bit of time, but uh, I'm looking forward to his vision of what he has planned for Steamboat. Most in particular is the drone industry and his concept of building drones in Steamboat. And, uh, you know, Canada is steep in aviation. You know, Bombardier, De Havilland, these companies, and maybe it's his turn. Maybe. Now, the drones, for people who don't really know, uh, still planning to use Stephenville as a passenger airport and commercial freight, what have you, but to build these massive drones on site. And Mr. Diamond has a history with the military, but these drones are not for military applications. They're for cargo and customers waiting in the country's north in particular for these drones to be used in that capacity. Mayor Rose, is there anything binding in place here? Because it's great, and I really appreciate it, Mr. Diamond making time for the show. So between the fire hall, and he says it's not like he can pick up the airport and move it, so he needs a functional fire hall. So between yeah. the fire hall and the investment at the airport and the drone manufacturing uh, com- uh, compound, and uh, there's also the Vertiport, I think is what it's called, that he's talking about yes. bringing to the airport in Stephenville. Is there anything binding, or are we still dealing with a place where a business person has said, we are committed, we have finalized, we're moving forward? Yeah, from our perspective, nothing binding on our side of the equation. Uh, let's just start maybe with the fire hall. So okay. we were looking at building a $6 million fire hall anyways. And Carl Diamond says, well, we would look at making a commitment because the fire hall they would want to build would be a little bit upscale to what our requirements were. So right now, as the airport stands, we were a Category 6-7 airport. His concept is to bring it to a higher level, which means a little bit bigger fire department, an additional truck for fire suppression to meet, you know, Transport Canada, ICAO regulations, that. So, you know, I'm just confident for me, it was just about taking the taxpayers off of the hook, uh, giving new life to the airport. You know, we've struggled, and, and but we never give up on it. And and now with the hydrogen deal and the wind farm, like that's going to drive the corporate, the cargo, the passenger demand, because we're going to be a very happening place with a lot of workers, a lot of business, a lot of tertiaries. So, you know, it's, it's looking really good, Patty. Well, it is. You know, the 
I knew why people were skeptical about the possibility for Mr. Diamond and the Diamond Group to come to town. And, you know, every now and then when a business meets its own self-imposed deadline, then people start to say, well, this was all, you know, this was all bluster. And sometimes things take time. So let's hope that everything proposed actually comes to pass. Mr. Diamond says he's fully capitalized, ready to go with his plans. So a couple of hundred million dollars in investments, he's talking about thousands of jobs. It's a huge big deal. Let's move on to the Port of Stephenville and okay. the wind to hydrogen play. You know, someone asked a question on this program last week about what this really means to the provincial government and to the region where they set up shop, whether it be Mr. Risley's play, whether it be out in Argentia. You know, my understanding is once they deal with land leases, it would be the tax base created by jobs as opposed to royalties that we're familiar with with mining and with the oil industry. Where is this particular plan? The government says when they did away with the ban on wind that they've got a lot of people, a lot of suitors knocking on the door. We've heard two formal proposals. Where are we with Mr. Risley? I think Mr. Risley's the one behind the, the play in Stephenville, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it is a massive play, uh, Patty. This, uh, you know, they're talking about having uh, Stephenville, Newfoundland, Canada uh, as a green energy hub for North America. And, and the number one checkbox, the number one, and I can't, stress it more is we have the best wind dna in north america so when you when you do a multi-billion dollar project and you want to monetize it and you want to get investment and you want partner companies you know you need every checkbox but when uh that wind in stephenville was the best in north america coupled that we got an international airport international seaport a great weather record good engineering structure to build roads and uh, gravity base uh, for these uh, wind turbines. But, you know, the, when, I, when I think about, you know, some people that are against it and they say, oh, it's a sight line, I don't want to see a wind turbine. Well, that's not everybody. I love wind turbines. I think it's the advent of innovation. But the greatest thing is it's green. There's no emissions. It's not a smokestack that's putting carbon in the atmosphere even though there's, you know, there's scrubbers and there's better ways to do it, this is actually zero green emissions. And and the little frustrating part for me is that uh, there's a lot of families in Newfoundland. You know, Patty, you have friends that maybe have rotating away and away from their families. And there's parents and grandparents with wish their children and grandchildren to be home. So here's a chance to make sustainable jobs, put Newfoundland on the map. Uh, increase our GDP by exporting an insatiable green product for the future, green hydrogen. And it's even going to accrue carbon credits. So, like, you know, there's so much good about this uh, to have people against it. Really, if you're against it, you're against family. Well, then people will inevitably be opposed to one project or another, what have you. Uh, just for a different layer of context here, too. So for these wind farms, and in this case, it's the uh, the uh, transformation of wind energy into hydrogen, green hydrogen for export through a process called water electrolysis. So you need the land. Yeah. You also need water, which is a real important component of this conversation as well, because not everywhere is well positioned with access to water. So you need the land, you need the water, you need a deep water port, and you need proximity to market, of which we have. His market would be, of course, across the Atlantic into the UK and into the European Union. Not to say there wouldn't be opportunities up and on the northeast coast of uh, North America, but that's where his sights are set. So we're keenly positioned for it. We've always got to be cognizant of issues regarding the value of the land lease, the types of jobs, and yes, where the turbines are, and yes, where they are in relationship to 
industry, commercial uh, land, and or residential communities. So all of these have to be considered, but there's a big upside here. Mr. Risley has a history in the province. Uh, obviously, he's got a fairly deep pocket. He's currently the chair of Canada's Ocean Supercluster. So he gets where that industry is going and where the potential is. So I'm just curious to hear how many more are coming behind him. I can't remember the name of the group uh, that's proposed the same thing or very something very similar in Argentia, but we've yep. certainly got some of those boxes available to be ticked by the Risleys and I think it's Power Group, or if I'm not mistaken, out in Argentia. So... Yeah. Should be some upside here. Yeah, and you know, Patty, uh, you're right on target there when you're talking about uh, the project scale and the resources. So here we are, you know, we produce more GDP than any province in Canada per capita because we're rich in iron ore and oil and gas. And now we've got a new resource step. Thank God the government changed their mind and allowed wind energy to happen. So this is perpetual. That wind is continuing. It, it won't run out like an oil well or a gold mine. You know, you they all have a lease life, and they monetize and do the business modeling around it. But here's something that can continue. So just this morning, John Leslie uh, pulled out of here with his executive jet. I think 10 community mayor leaders on the peninsula to fly to Ontario to look at a wind farm. And and when we talk these wind farms, and this is this is a really good analogy. So most of these wind farms, uh, wind turbines are going to be about a kilometer, a thousand meters from the nearest business house. That that that's the site plan that they have, they're working on. If you were within 100 meters of these whisper quiet turbines, it would be the same decibel noise level as in your sitting in your house listening to your refrigerator. So, you know. Yeah, There's the technology's changed. The big, oh really God. extraordinarily loud swoosh, I don't think is as the no. same now as it once was, which was a problem, and I understand that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's only, the whole industry regarding green hydrogen in particular is at its infancy, not just in Canada, but around the world. There's one, maybe two uh, scalable green hydrogen projects under construction in the entire world. Yes. So we know it to be true. Here's an interesting relationship as well. One of the, it's either one or, or, or two, One's in Saudi Arabia. Their partners, ExxonMobil. Now, all of a sudden, yeah. we've got Saudi Arabian oil company and ExxonMobil joining forces here, all the while both really digging into the possibility for alternative forms, which comes in the form of green hydrogen. So they've got their money where their mouth is in, the, in Saudi Arabia, and here they are here working on different stuff, albeit, I would imagine, recognizing the fact that land, wind, deep-sea ports, proximity to market is something that might be a home for their money. So there's a lot of little different moving parts that are coming together. Yeah, and, and you know the transition, and we know that oil and gas will always be around. It makes, you know, your greases, your oils. Your, there's going to be a demand for fossil fuels forever. Uh, it's just that certain types of energy requirements are finding we're an evolving nation, planet Earth and all the continents. You know, we're, we're getting better at it, you know. So when you, when you think about ExxonMobil in Saudi Arabia, well, Shell just partnered with the potential off-wind project here in Bay St. George. So that off-wind project, they might wheel the power across on the Amira link into Nova Scotia, or they might supply John Risley uh, with additional uh, energy because they need, they need energy, and, and it's the wind energy that the world wants. It's not hydroelectric. It's not nuclear. It's not fossil fuels to make hydrogen. It's wind. It gives you your highest value. But the big thing here is that when that product reaches that European Union, and, and the other strength we have as being Canadians and Newfoundlanders, Patty, is geopolitical 
we're a very stable nation. So when you see big multi-billion dollar investment, uh, there's a lot of great nations in this you know, on, on the planet. But there are some areas that the, the political climate could be challenging and invest in billions of there's a, a coup d'etat or, you know, there, there's so many big multinational parameters. But, you know, having uh, Exxon and Shell and BP and these big guys transitioning to green hydrogen, and, and here we are in Newfoundland and Labrador. We're going to put we're going to put Canada and North America on the map. Yeah, and we you know Shell also one of the world leaders in liquefying natural gas offshore on a self-contained platform, which is yeah. also something people are kicking the proverbial tire of. Here, I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Mayor Rose. Thanks a lot. Well, I really appreciate you having me on, Patty. Take good care. Okay, sir. Alrighty, bye bye, Mayor Tom Rose. The mayor of the town of Stephenville, and there's always going to be people in opposition to a variety of these types of proposals. Some it's about how new it is and what we may or may not know about what it looks like, the footprint, the noise pollution, the rest of it. We can take it on if you're so inclined. When we come back from this particular break, Mike's in the queue to talk about a recent report about Eastern Health, and then Eugene's there to talk about a moose accident. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line three, Eugene, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello there. Yes, thank you to your producer, Fonts, and yourself and VOCM for giving me the opportunity to get on to voice my concern. Uh, Patty, a big concern, of course, uh, that moose accident last week that claimed a life. Uh, my my sympathy goes out to the family and friends of that person, and uh, I understand there's also a passenger that's in critical condition. Uh, that's uh, over by Soakbrook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patty, uh, brings back a lot of memories for me, of course. Being in a moose accident myself in 2002 and had bust up pretty bad and still suffer from today, actually. And eight of my family members have been in moose accidents. Uh, so it brings it brings home a, a very serious point. Uh, you know, uh, I started that group SOPAC back in 2009, Save Our People Action Committee, to try to get more done along the highways with the brush cut fencing. We get, did get uh, 16 kilometers of fencing. Uh, some nine, ten years ago, whatever, and we did get a brush-cutting program put in place, and I just opened that the government is going to follow suit with that brush-cutting. I know there have been a lot of brush-cuts since 2009, and thank you, government. Thank you for doing it, because I do believe, and and uh, the majority of the population do believe, that it saves lives because it gives clearances along the highway, and you get to see the moose before the moose is in through your windshield, like in my case, in Goobies in 2002. So, Patty, uh, you know... Uh, I, I can't understand why we got that program put in place. We got an 800 number put in place that been carried on VOCM, as you know. Uh, and uh, the ad to cover the seriousness of moose accidents on the highway. Now, we usually try to get that on after May 2 for a weekend. Here it is, the 25th of July. I don't hear a sound. We're still having fatalities, and, and it's not good enough. We have many moose accidents. Uh, so uh, what what is the problem there? It's it's not good enough, you know. And I'm still concerned. I'm still a member of SOPAC, and I'm still concerned, of course, like you would. And every time I hear us talk of an accident like this, it brings the point home. I don't understand why they wouldn't add that ad on. 
You know, it's very important. And the 800 number to report moose on the highway. Government, please, you know, we're having people killed on the highway. If there's something you can do to save lives, no, you're not going to spend millions of dollars in fencing, as we can see, which we did, we wish you did, like New Brunswick, 500 kilometers plus done, uh, with 33,000 moose, and we with over 100,000 moose. So uh, the government is not paying, not doing justice to the people of this province, and it's very sad. It's you know it's hitting me right in the heart right now, actually. But Eugene, has the brush clearing program not happened the way it has annually? Because look, we're, we don't have to have a debate about what is the most effective a play for keeping people safe on the province's highways and byways. But for sure, the ability to possibly see the moose is a good start. So yeah. has the brush program not began like it has over the last number of years? See, Patty, we got transportation and works. They know the condition along the highways. They know where brush should be cut. For example, now, there's 10, 15 kilometers uh, on the Gander Bay Road outside of Gander uh, that should be cut. We're having moose accidents there. I almost struck one a few days ago. You know, there's going to be a fatality soon, so please get out and cut the brush. I have sent an email to the Minister Loveless. I have sent an email to the opposition I have sent an email to the chair of SOPAC. Please, someone needs to move on this. We need our ad on VOCM, to, uh, especially Columbia and the many tourists on the highway that's not aware of the serious moose action problem we got. We need that 800 number. We need to be able to, you know, we need the head to remind people. Plus, we need brush cut where necessary. And, and that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of moose in that area. Gander, like many places in Newfoundland. So why wouldn't you move on it? Why wouldn't you even at least respond to someone that have been bust up bad in a moose accident and, and, and have had family members in a moose accident and started the group SOPAC, which have saved people's lives, I do believe. Why wouldn't you even at least respond to Eugene Nippert? I'm only a, a, a local Joe like anyone else. But why wouldn't you even respond and say, yes, we're taking this very serious and we will try to get that brush cut sometime down the road. But no response. There's like dead in the water, you know. But here we just had a fatality. And and I don't know. Maybe that area there was brushed next to the highway. I don't know. I haven't checked the area, and I don't know exactly. I haven't talked to the family or anyone. But I tell you, if anyone wanted to call me, my number is 486-7373. Cell, my house is 266-2427. And I don't want this to die. I have had enough with this moose accident problem and i tell you i want to continue and i want to save life in this province and if there's anything i can do to continue SOPAC, to continue getting people's lives saved i want to do it patty i appreciate the time eugene thanks for this okay brother take care bye-bye bye-bye all right it is indeed time for the break for the newscast when we come back we're talking eastern health don't go away Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Hiya, Mike. Patty, I recently resurrected the Compass thing because the last two years there were covid uh, it wasn't much good of getting paid to do anything about the infrastructure problems in Eastern Health. But I don't know if you remember back two years ago in January, he was supposed to have released a report on the Compass Group of what the costs were, what the benefits were, and 
how much excessive to what it was before with their previously. I don't know if you remember it or I not. I do, yep. Yeah, but uh, anyway, now I, I went looking for a copy of the report. Uh, it don't seem like anybody knows anything about it. I went to ATIP, and they came back and said, didn't know anything about it, and canceled the the request that I put in. But anyway, I'm not finished with that yet. But i got to give much thanks to uh, VOCM Open Line and that stuff, because over the years, I've had numerous conversations with you and Bill Rowe, and the only way it's getting to these people is basically through Open Line. And uh, all the stuff that I brought up before, factual, uh, documented, and whatever. But anyway, like right there now with the previous contracts, apparently there's a new contract now that's totally different from the other one. And due to the open line show and that, whatever, they've got a contract lawyer in that now that nothing is allowed to be signed or written on any of the contracts without, without uh, legal representation from the government which is a big step as far as I'm concerned because they were getting away with contracts that cost this province hundreds of millions of dollars uh, through Eastern Health. And I'd like to stress this point too, that the waste of money that I'm talking about is not doctors and nurses or the staff and that stuff that serves the people. It's the infrastructure, like the restaurants, uh, the laundry facilities, and these services and that and stuff is where the big bulk of money can be saved to and all over the years of what we paid excessively to uh, these contractors, which is totally ridiculous. But anyway, the thing is, is that why is this report held back? Why is it gone? Where is it to? How do we get the report? How do we get the new contract that Compass has? Now, I was told this morning by some phone calls that I had is that the uh, contract is nothing like the previous ones. Uh, they just didn't uh, sign it now without looking at the reading it and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of good came out of it and that now the, the contracts are all being scrutinized by all of these people. But uh, the thing that gets me too is that, you know, we still got the executives there. We still got the CEOs, all these people that made the mistakes, the cost us all this money and everything. They've all got increases in pay, higher jobs, and everything else. And now Tom Osborne is there replacing Dr. Hagen. Now, Tom Osborne was there before. When I complained to him about it, he went to Dave Diamond, CEO at the time. The question about the Compass Group and all he got from Dave Diamond was that the Compass Group were an integral part of planning and uh, long-term Eastern Health uh, programs and that stuff, which really should have been corrected by Tom Osborne at the time because these contracts are supposed to be renewed every year or every so many years. They can't just go and promote uh, the Compass Group as, oh, they're in our long-range planning. They're the ones, the CEO and the executives in them, they're the ones that should be doing the long-term planning and that stuff and all the rest of it. We should not have the hard contractors for them. If we got contractors there, then we don't need the executive. We don't need these CEOs. So one or the other should go. And I don't particularly care which one. But as far as I'm concerned, I think that we're paying double management. And uh, there's some good stuff after coming out of it. But I think there's a lot more savings there and whatever yet to come. 
No better disinfectant than a bit of sunlight on these contracts and how we arrived at the contracts. I agree. But uh, like I said there now, I'm not getting much from ATIP yet. I put in one request and a very simple uh, thing there. I want to know how many Commerce employees are there, how much they're being paid, and what positions they got. They want 20 days just to figure out how much it's going to cost Eastern Health in order to get the information. All of this stuff should be at their fingertips. Every year, annually, they should know how much you pay to the Commerce Group and your other contractor. They should know the employees that are there that are Commerce employees and not uh, Apparently, all this done is that the Commerce Group pays their employees, they send the bill to Eastern Health, and it's just paid. Uh, how it all comes about, how the contract works, and that, like I said, I don't know yet. I haven't been able to get it. I haven't been able to see it. But the thing is that this report is there. They're denying now that the report is there. The report was done. And now I can't get any satisfaction from ATIP or from the government as regards to where this report and the Commerce Group uh, is. Mike, I always appreciate you digging into it and bringing us up to date when you have any uh, additional information, and you can do exactly that if you get some from the most recent round of ATIP requests. Anything else you want to say before they flag me off to the break this morning, Mike? Yeah, well, I had a lot of respect one time for Tom Osborne, but when he was health minister the last time, uh, I was greatly disappointed in him. And uh, I think now putting him back there when we're Hagee, replacing Hagee again, I think we got the same old team, the same old thing. He's only just a guest man for Eastern Health. The executive is going to tell him what to do. And he's not going to make a change to anything. And it's not going to be any better than what it was previously. Appreciate this, Mike. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Take good, good care. All right, bye-bye. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. When we come back, there's a caller, who I believe is a fisherman. Has nowhere to sell his catch. Catch a what? We'll see. And then there's Keith talking about preparation to go back to school. It's not that far away. As much as we like to think we're just in the dog days of summer now, before you know it, back to school. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Keith, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Doing okay. How you doing? Not too bad. I'm just kind of concerned with the upcoming uh, school year on the uh, horizon and not very much information about the uh, new kid on the block, monkeypox, and what we're going to do about the rampant COVID situation here in the province. So what are you speaking about in particular about uh, preparation to return? Because if we're talking, like for me, I think one of the keys that has been overlooked far too often here is the caliber of uh, air filtration, air purification, and ventilation systems. The province, I, I think when I asked uh, people inside the world of education, K-12, they're pretty pleased with that side of it. So what in addition are you talking about for preparation? Well, I mean, they might be pleased about it, but I don't see, I, I haven't seen any major renovations to any of the buildings. No, there hasn't been. They're standalone you know, units, yep. Yeah, it's the little, like, uh, I know one teacher who had five of those in their room, and every single one of them was filthy at the end of one month. So, I mean, if that's the the total mitigation plan for the air quality, I don't, you know, uh, being a teacher myself, I don't, I, I don't see that as adequate. But, I mean, it comes down to, the measures we had in place before. So uh, right now in the whole province, we have no masking, you know, mandates, they call it, when, when really it's a, like a safety precaution, right? It's when you call it a mandate or a rule or 
a restriction or whatever, then people see it in a different light. But right now we really have nothing in place besides, hey, you should do this. And uh, we do have, you know, a, a global health emergency declared with the monkeypox on top of uh, the COVID situation that hasn't died down. So uh, usually what, what happened with COVID since it started was we would have a big wave and then we would have breaks in between. We're not getting that break. And that's reflective in healthcare. You know, it's, it's, it's troubling that right now in July, there's, uh, you know, we're seeing sporadic ERs closing down because of lack of staff or, or whatever else. And I mean, people can say, well, that's because they didn't hire enough people or whatever, but we all know what the, you know, the antecedent is. We know what the cause is of, uh, you know, not having enough staff because a lot of people are sick in July. I mean, if you look around, like everybody right now, uh, you know, knows somebody who is sick with something. And what we saw for the two, almost two years when everybody was wearing masks and we had lots of, you know, uh, you know, precautions in place was that no one was getting sick with anything. So then we get rid of masks and all of a sudden everybody's sick. So, uh, you know, for the naysayers of masking and whatever else, that's kind of, you know, the writing's on the wall when it comes to, you know, whether or not masks work and if they're, you know, worth it or whatever. And what, what, blows my mind is and what's very disappointing is that right now so we've we've come to the point where we're so uh, you know we've been told we have to live with this we uh, you know everyone is going to get covid everyone is going to you know you're you're going to have to get omicron so you know there's millions of people who haven't caught it yet and and to to give up like that and just go okay whatever we got to live with it if that's going to be the plan with every virus how many viruses do our school children have to go in and play Russian roulette with? So if we have monkeypox on the horizon, are we going to tell the kids, you got to learn to live with that one too. And then if something else pops up, you got to learn to live with that one too. And we're not going to put any rules in place because it might inconvenience adults, right? Like, Yeah. A couple of things. So I don't even know how public health can manage, you know, regulations or restrictions or what have you when the testing protocols that we've abandoned regarding PCR tests. So I, I don't even know if people get what the prevalence of the virus might be in the general community. We were told we have to yeah. look at hospitalizations and deaths, what have you, and I think those numbers yeah. come out, but I still don't know if they paint an entire picture. For monkeypox, I haven't been talking about it. I don't pretend to know much about it, but the last numbers I saw, there were 681 cases in the country in full. I did see yeah. a couple of days ago, there was two cases in children in the entirety of the United States. So yeah. is there a real risk that we should be discussing more regarding that particular virus, given, you know, if we're talking about the K-12 system, of course, adults will have a different exposure issue. The transmission issue, issue is different than COVID. And children seemingly, at this point anyway, only two cases diagnosed in the entirety of the United States. So where, in your estimation, should we be going with that conversation for return to school? So far. So what, what we're seeing is kind of a mirroring of when COVID came around, because when COVID first popped up, it was uh, kids aren't going to catch this. And if they do, it's not really going to harm them. So then that totally bypassed, you know, looking at or taking into consideration long COVID and the rest of the, you know, mountain of issues that COVID causes in any age of a person. So uh, the, the fact that we're not, you know, taking the assumption that it could affect kids and then, you know, if, if they're going to say to me, you know, this won't spread in schools like they did with COVID, every single virus, every single sickness, unless it's a, an SPD or, you know, something that's, uh, you know, uh, localized to one environment spreads in schools. Every single virus has, has spread in schools because kids, 
you, it's it's almost impossible to keep them, you know, their hands out of their mouths from sneezing, like whatever. So the fact that we're not playing this one more cautious is really troublesome to me. Like, uh, you know, for its contagiousness, monkeypox is super contagious and it has a longer incubation period and it has a longer contagious period. So, the, you know, to roll the dice and go, yeah, this probably won't spread in schools. It just blows my mind. And the other thing is they're not really testing for it all over the place. So in the U.S., yeah, they've only found they found two cases in kids so far. But there's videos all over social media of people like, hey, I'm covered in monkeypox. And they won't test me for it at my local hospital. So if, if we're going to play the just live with it and pretend it doesn't exist game with this virus and COVID as well, and I, I just don't see that policy working out. I mean, we've, we've tried the whole let's live with it and have no mitigating you know, uh, strategies. It's like you know, if the climate cert- suddenly changed and all of a sudden it was 50 degrees here every day, and you, know, you just go, you know, well, we, we don't need sunblock because we didn't have sunblock before. Uh, we have to adjust. To me, if we're going to live with COVID, then we might have to live with some inconveniences like wearing a mask and doing things that are going to limit COVID especially if other viruses are coming along, you know, to help out in, the, in this, you know, if you talk to people in the healthcare system, it's chaos. If, if ERs are closing in July, imagine what that's going to do in October and November and December. And when we get into the heart of the winter, I, I just, the, the lack of being proactive right now is very troubling. Like it's, it's super concerning. So uh, you've had the last word this morning, Keith, but I appreciate your time. Thanks, Patty. You're awesome, bud. Take good care. Bye-bye. I mean, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the fall holds. It's going to be uh, interesting to see how people adjust or think, and that includes public health and it includes the school district itself. And I don't know. I, I really don't. We don't even have a firm grasp on whatever the prevalence might be of one virus or another out there because we just don't have the data. Uh, and again, whenever we talk about these things, people would initially and automatically say, well, I'm fear-mongering. Well, of course, I'm not, and because that's not the intention of. Awareness and understanding is obviously the key to sharing information, sharing data, and having open, honest, realistic conversations. If you pose Keith's view, you know what to do. You can call the show. And that can happen tomorrow morning where we will indeed pick up this conversation here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy Monday. We'll talk tomorrow.